and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Bill Yonker on session five of his talk on seasoning our own corner of the world. Right, so we are at our third day seasoning, seasoning our little corner of the world. Uh, we'll see if we can make all this. Thank you when you came up here to get your picture taken, not to knock this over. That was kind of you. Um, I had only a little fear, and then I thought, what is, will, will, whatever will be, will be. Remember that, Doris Day? Que sera, sera. Um, and then uh, I saw the director, Dan, standing here guarding it, and I thought that was so kind of him. Um, let us go on. Oh, it helps if you plug it in, you see. There. There we go. Again. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Be what you is. You are the salt. And so we talked about salt flavoring. Why does Jesus call us salt to flavor our little corner of the world? Uh, to preserve yesterday, to preserve. Another thing of salt that salt does, it makes people thirsty. Do you make people thirsty for God? Because um, Jesus has a lot to say about thirst. In fact, um, uh, the woman at the well, we talked about her the other day. Uh, she'd been um, divorced by five men, kicked to the curb. She, six men wouldn't live with her, or wouldn't marry her, but would live with her, put a roof over her head. She came to draw water by herself in the heat of the day. They lived in a desert. So she's not only an outcast, a Samaritan, even the other women didn't want to be with her. She's an outcast of the outcasts. And she comes and Jesus is waiting there. And while they're talking, she says this. Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And she also meant by herself. Here's a great question. In life, what are you thirsting for that you would sacrifice other things to get it? I know people who are drug addicts who thirst for their next fix. They'll sacrifice their safety, their money, their future, their family, to get their next fix of drugs. I know people that are thirsting so much for, for belonging that they will sacrifice healthy relationships to become part of unhealthy relationships, gangs, cults, nefarious groups of people. I know people who want to be held and they will do almost anything to be held. I was at a camp and uh, in Iowa. 200 kids, high school kids, 199 wanted to be there. One of them didn't, and she let you know. It was hot. It was hot that week. Boy, it was brutally hot, and yet she wore long pants, long sleeve shirt. She wore bangs in front of her face. She, she wore uh, earth tones all the time. She was trying to blend in, I think, with the earth. I found out her name was Erin. And she made it very clear that she was a part of things, but she set apart herself even when she was a part of things. You know how that goes. Her counselor was this fabulous girl named Cindy, a student at uh, Augustana in Sioux Falls. And um, I thought, Cindy, you've got a tough job having Aaron as one of your kids. Well, it was, you know how these weeks go. It's a, a Sunday through a Friday. And by Wednesday, uh, we were having a ball, and I was able pretty much to it bothered me that Erin wouldn't pay attention, that she would 
dismissed the rest of us, but I, I figured it wasn't my job to do any scolding. But Wednesday night, we always did this cool Vesper service in the evening where we sang camp songs and I'd give a message and try to make kids laugh, try to make them cry, try to make them feel, you know. And uh, it was before that, Cindy, the counselor, came up and she said, Bill, will you do me a favor? I said, of course. She said, will you talk with Aaron and I? And I was like, Ugh. 199 kids want to be there. I want to talk to the kids that want to be there. I said, of course. So I said, you know, I, I, I'm pretty busy. I, we could talk for about half an hour. She said, that's enough. We started talking at 7 o'clock. By 8 o'clock, people were looking for the three of us. We were sitting outside the chapel. By 8.30, they were saying, Bill, you, you got to come do your next thing, whatever I had to do. I said, I'll be there by 9 o'clock. We were really late getting ready for Vespers. And these people came to get us. And there was this one girl that was there. And she was probably a freshman or sophomore. Erin was uh, going to be a junior. She'd finished her 10th grade. She was going to be a junior. And uh, here's why it took us so long. Erin was having a tough life where she felt a nobody. And she was so hungry for attention. One time she took a can of beer out of her dad's refrigerator. It was out in the, the garage. He kept a, a beer and soda refrigerator out there. And uh, she took it to school. She wasn't sure what she was going to do with it, but she just thought she'd have a secret all day carrying around a can of beer. Well, it was almost time for her. School to be done. She knew she had to get rid of the can of beer because her mom always grabbed her backpack and went through it to make sure there were no notes or anything you know, from the teachers of the school. And there was this boy. He was kind of nice to her. Every once in a while, he would say, hey, and he didn't bump into her like the other boys did, trying to make her drop her books. And so he, her, his locker was by hers, and so he, she went up to him and said, hey, and he said, what do you want? She said, look, and she opened her backpack, and there was the can of beer, and the boy said, where'd you get that? And she said, from home. He said, what are you going to do with it? She said, you want it? He said, really? He was part of the football team. He was one of the cool ones, you know. And she said, yeah, you can really take it. And he took it, and he made sure nobody's looking, shoved it in his book bag. He said, he patted her shoulder and said, Thanks. She said, him patting my shoulder sent electricity through my body. The next day I brought another can of beer. And he and his friend came up to me this time. They came up to my locker. They came up to me, Aaron, and said, hi. And then I asked, you got another can of beer? And she said, yeah. And she opened the pack and they said, can we have it? And she said, yeah. And they took it out. She said, I did that about five days in a row. But then my dad noticed some beer was missing, and I said I didn't know what was wrong with it. He was the only one that drank beer in our family. He must have drank it. Well, she was too afraid to take any more beer. When the boys came over and said, you got any beer? She said, no. And they saw it all, and they started to walk away, and she said, but if you come over Friday, we could have some of my dad's beer because the parents were going to go away. And so the boys came over, about four or five of them, and they drank a bunch of beer, all the beer that was there. And they hid the cans in a field behind the garage. The girl lived in Fort Dodge, Iowa. She knew she was going to get in trouble. When the dad came home, didn't have any beer, he called all the kids, and all the kids said, we didn't take your beer, we didn't drink your beer. So they thought somebody was breaking into the garage, stealing the beer. So the dad put a lock on the refrigerator. 
The next week, the boys came over when Aaron's parents were gone. And she didn't have any beer to give them. So they started to leave. And she said, I don't want you to leave. I don't have beer, but here's what I got. And she gave them her. The next Monday at school, she thought they would be nice to her. They had been hugging and kissing her that Friday night. But on Monday, they wouldn't even look at her. And they said terrible names about her. And I'm just disgusted with myself. And I came to this camp because my mom made me. Nobody knows me here, so they don't call me those awful names. But I hear you talk about Jesus. I just want to know if Jesus can love me. And so from seven to nine, we spent that time, Cindy and I, trying to tell Aaron why she was loved and why she didn't have to sacrifice her dignity, her faith, or her body. It was a God moment when they came to get me and said, Bill, you got to come now. we got to start Vespers. And when they came, they brought this girl, Susie. And she was, she was going to be a, a sophomore, I think. She was younger than Aaron, but just a little bit. And I remember Aaron being sad that our time was over, and I felt so bad for this child, this beautiful child who wore long sleeves, long pants, in the heat of the summer with bangs over her face, wearing earth tones, just trying not to be noticed. But the God moment happened when this girl, Susie, walked up and said, Aaron, I'm in your group. I don't know if you noticed me, but I noticed you. And I wondered if you'd sit with me at Vespers tonight. And Aaron said, okay. And I remember they sat at Vespers. And I remember Susie sitting next to Aaron, pointing at the words that we'd sing. And Cindy having tears in the corner of her eyes. Me, tears streaming down my face. (laughs) Thursday. Aaron had always said that in the cafeteria they have picnic tables. And and she'd always sit at the end of a picnic table by herself. But she wasn't in the middle. But she wasn't on the end. And Susie was next to her. And there were other girls talking to Aaron. After lunch, there was a little free time. And I saw them still sitting in the cafeteria. And, and, and Aaron was sitting with, with her feet not under the table but around. And these other girls were like pulling back her hair. And said, you have a pretty face. we got to let people see your face. And, and aren't you hot in that shirt? We gotta, well, let's put you in a T-shirt. And they, they, these girls, they were, whole, they were angels. They were ministers of God. And, and Aaron smiled. Friday, we do a closing service, and then there's a video and then you go to the turnaround where parents come and pick up the kids. And there's the hugging and kissing and crying and goodbying, and I love that part. And I remember we were in the turnaround. Oh, before that, um, Friday at breakfast, Erin came up to me and she said, I know it's going to get crazy when it's time to say goodbye. So can I just, let me say goodbye now. And I said, Okay. And she said, I know you're a hugger, so I'm going to hug you. And she threw her arms around me. Well, she didn't throw her arms around me. I'm, she cut. <laughs> it's a little bitty thing. <laughs> and her head was on my chest, and she just squeezed so tight. I really didn't think much about her after that. There was all these other kids, you know, that I'd met and hung out with and spent a lot of time with. We were in the turnaround, and I was saying goodbye to these boys from Morris, Illinois, five of them. I don't know if you ever heard of Morris, Illinois, but in Illinois, they're like, um, 
uh, one of the smaller high schools in the but every year they'd win the state football. They, they were like 56 and all. These farm boys, you know, their knuckles dragging football. <laughs> and and they were they were phenomenal. And and I say I made a good connection with them. In fact, one of them, I went to dunk one guy, and uh, I caught him unaware, so I was ready to dunk him. And then he turned around, and I realized how big he was. And he went. He thought I was a tackling dummy. And he forgot how old I am. He hit me so hard, my fillings rattled. And then I'm under the water. <laughs> and then I got up, and he goes, how was that? I'm going, nice hit, nice hit. <laughs> and I'm almost thinking, I almost saw Jesus. <laughs> but as I'm saying goodbye to these boys, all of a sudden, Susie came running down, and she said, Yonker. And I said, Susie, I'll be right with you. I'm saying goodbye. She said, Yanka. I said, Susie, just a sec. And I was saying, you know, talking. And all of a sudden, she grabbed me by my shirt. And she pulled. She said, Yanka, Aaron's trying to kill herself. And she took off running. And there was a counselor there. And they called him Yam. It wasn't his real. I'm not sure why they, Y-O-M, Yam. Yam's truly a brother in the Lord. I, I made a great connection with him that week. And I just said, Yom, come with me. And he didn't say, why, where are we going? I don't have time. And I took off running <clears throat> as best as I could up to follow Susie. And Yom came with. We went in the cabin. And the, the, the girls' cabins, uh, you walk in the front door and you could either go this way and then like that or, or this way and like that. And then there was the kind of the bunk rooms and little tables for their, their suitcases. And then in the back was the bathroom. And so I went... We went in, and Susie was just standing at the door crying. And I said, where is she? And she pointed. And we went into the bathroom, Yam and I, and there's blood everywhere. And, but she wasn't there. I said, where'd she go? She goes, she was there when I was there. What had happened, she had, she had cut herself, and she was kneeling in front of the toilet and, and watching her life drip into the toilet. That's not a metaphor. That truly happened. And when Susie saw her, thought she was sick, and came over and said, Aaron, and she went, ah, and that's why all over the walls. And she said, I ran to get you, and I don't know where she is, and I heard a noise. And so the, you walked in the bathroom, and the toilet was here, the sink was here, and then behind is the shower stall. And so I heard a noise, and I, I pulled back the door, and there she was, crumpled, bleeding, and there was an empty bottle of, of Advil. And so we scooped her up, and I said, Yam, I need something to stop the bleeding. He went through some kid's luggage. To this day, I have no idea. Found two washcloths, and we stanched the blood. The nurse came running because she had heard. Somebody had heard Susie say that to me, thanks be to God. And they went and told the nurse. The nurse came running, and then she saw what was going on. She said, stop the bleeding. She ran to get her station wagon. She came back to her station wagon right up to the cabin up on the hill. And we loaded her in, and we went, there's not a full hospital in this town, but they had a pretty good med-first type place. And they pumped her stomach, and... Um, her, uh, her parents weren't going to come get her. Some, some, somebody they knew but didn't know well, was she dropped off the other kids. and The mom of, of Aaron dropped them off on the way there, and then on the way home, the other mom was supposed to pick them up. And so the parents weren't there. So I, I went and I, I called the parents. And they said, we'll be right there. Well, Fort Dodge was a couple hours away. So we knew we had to wait a couple hours. And then I called the pastor. Phenomenal man, phenomenal man. Uh, most pastors on Friday afternoons are doing one of two things. They're either working on their sermons or they take the day off. And when I told this pastor what happened and who happened, he said, I'm jumping in the car right now. And I said, really? I said, can you do that? And he said, oh, I must do that. What a great man of God. That, that was tremendous to me. And um, we waited for the parents to come. I remember her mom asking her, why did you do this? And she said, Mom, 
I've had friends. And they were all going back to their lives. I couldn't go back to mine. Her pastor did some phenomenal work. Got them, got her and the family some serious help. And the parents were incredible. I mean, they have other children, but they, they knew that this, this was incredibly important and they took care of this, this child. Erin and I would keep in touch through email. Two years after that, she was hired on staff at that camp. She was in college and she was studying to be a counselor. When she graduated from college with her degree, she wanted to work counseling young ladies who needed to know that there's help and hope out there. Today, Erin is a successful counselor, alive and well. You see, so many people thirst for things that are unhealthy, unholy. She just, the, the thought of when that boy first touched her shoulder as a pat, and she said electricity went through her body. And sadly, we live in a society today where there is so much inappropriate touching that now we're getting to a point that we're afraid to give healthy, holy touching. Or it gets misconstrued. Or we think we don't want to sacrifice our reputation or our financial stability for fear that someone might misconstrue and take it. And so we don't, we don't touch anymore. I, I said to Lynn, my favorite part of yesterday, we were doing the faith walk and her son Jackson came up and I met him this week. And for whatever reason, he just grabbed my hand. And so we went, my wife was there and we're walking holding hands. And I like, and then he, he kind of scrunched his nose and he smelled my hand and he said, you smell like bug spray and he let it go. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd heard Lynn say earlier that um, he's tactile. He's, we talked about, you know, the five languages of love. I want you to read that book by Gary Chapman. One of the languages of love is physical touch. That's, that's certainly his or at least one of them. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, maybe I did him a favor by holding his hand. And then as I got thinking, I think he did me a favor by holding mine. <laughs> and that uh, in a healthy, holy way, can we figure that out so that we can give appropriate, holy, because we need to touch. When I was in seminary, uh, Professor Eldine Hempelman, one of my favorites, he said, as a pastor, if you go make a visit and you do not touch them in some way, squeeze their shoulder, wipe their brow, uh, give them a hug, shake their hand, something, if you do not touch them, you have not made a pastoral visit. You made a visit, but you did not make a pastoral visit. You need to touch them. And I think of Jesus healing people, where Jesus would reach out the leper, in chapter 1 of Mark, the leper comes to Jesus and says, you can heal me if you want to. Now, you know about leprosy, right? It was so, so frightful for people that if you had leprosy, people would pick up rocks and throw them at you or they'd cover themselves and they'd point and go, unclean, unclean. And in, so you had to live in a leper colony. But even those living in leper colonies, they didn't understand leprosy. So even those living in leper colonies lived apart from each other because they worried that if you got one leper got too close to another leper, it would accelerate the leprosy. So nobody touching you, nobody. And he comes and he falls before Jesus. People were so afraid of lepers that uh, they thought if the shadow of a leper fell on them, they'd get it. So that's how far away people would stay. They wouldn't let the shadow fall. And so this guy knows the rule, and it says he comes and he falls down before Jesus, probably at a respectable distance, and says, you can heal me if you want to. And the Gospel of Mark says this, Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him and said, I want to 
and healed him. And it wasn't, there was a double healing, wasn't there? Not just the healing of the leprosy, but the healing of being welcomed back into community. What are you thirsting for? What are you willing to thirst for? Do you know that people are thirsty? Um, Pastor, I love what you said this morning. Um, you, you made me cry, by the way. I love your story, and I'm going to pray for you too, that you stay healthy. But that longing for God. I love that phrase. You said it. You said you had a longing for God in the midst of that. I think everybody does. I think you articulated it best, but we have a longing to, to a longing to belong. A longing for belonging in God's family. And sometimes we forget that. And we who are in, we forget that there are those who are out and want to come in. And it's not just to make them happy. It's that, that they would be alive. Every second of every hour of every day, people are dying and going to hell because they don't know Jesus. That, that resonates with my soul. Consider. I need sound for this, Sam. Sam, I need sound. Now give way. Ahead easy. It's from the movie Titanic. Careful with your oars. Don't hit them. Is there anyone alive out there? Can anyone hear me? Is there anyone alive out there? We waited too long. Well, keep checking them. Keep looking. Is there anyone alive out there? Can anyone hear me? We waited too long. I heard of a speaker. She was phenomenal. I wish I could remember her name. Shame on me for not. I try to give credit where credit is due. And, and I'm sure other people have said this, but she was the first one I heard it from when she said this. She said, you're on your way to heaven. And so on the last day when you're being escorted, ushered into heaven, because Jesus died and took away your sins, there's no reason you don't get to go. You are claimed through the blood of the Lamb. You're a believer. You're on your way to heaven, and all of a sudden you hear a noise and you look over your shoulder. And you look and you see someone that you loved or cared about on earth, but you never took the time to tell about Jesus. And they're being ushered to the other place. And you make eye contact. And you're getting ready to go to heaven. And they look at you and they simply say, Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Yeah, it can be socially awkward. It can. But do not the rewards outrun the risks. There was a little boy who was um, had to get ready for bed. Mom was out with her friends, so Daddy had the job. So he was being a good daddy. It was time to go to bed, and the dad was just excited about the boy being in bed. He was going to sit in his recliner and read the paper and have some alone time. So he put the boy's pajamas on, brushed his teeth, said prayers, gave 65,000 kisses, read a book or two, and then said, okay, son, time to go to sleep. And as the dad was ready to get up off the bed, the boy said, Dad, I'm thirsty. And, and, and the dad says, no, son, you're not going to get a drink. Dad, I'm so thirsty. Can I have a drink? And the dad says, no. Because if I give you a drink, then you're going to have to go to the bathroom again. Then we're going to have to start this all over again. No, you're fine. You'll be, you can have a drink when you wake up in the morning. But, Dad, I'm so thirsty. Son, no. No means no. Now enough. And he gets up and he turns off the light. 
And he walks down the stairs. And he's, his living room is right at the foot of the stairs. He can hear his son fine. All of a sudden he says, here's the boy. He says, Dad, please, can I have a drink? I'm so thirsty. The dad says, no, son, I said no. Now stop it. Go to sleep. But dad, son, I don't want to get angry with you. He was silent for about 30 seconds. And the boy, Dad, I'm so thirsty. Son, that's it. Enough. I said no. No means no. Now, if I have to say it one more time, I'm going to come up there and give you a spanking. And it went silent. And then all of a sudden, the little boy said, Dad, when you come up to give me a spanking, will you bring me a drink of water? got to give a little something light after the heavy stuff. But it, it dawns on me, what, what are you willing to be punished for to satisfy your thirst? Jesus thirsted so much for our salvation. And on the cross, one of the seven words he says is, I thirst. And indeed it was a physical thirst. It's amazing to me, you know, he was the river of life, and yet he says, I thirst, and that shows us his humanity. He was fully human as well as fully God. That's one of the reasons he says that. But I think there's a deeper thirst. I think he's thirsting for our souls, and that's why he's bleeding and dying, and he doesn't. He could have popped those nails up, boom, anytime he wanted. He could have had six legions of angels come down and wipe everybody out. He even said it. But he was thirsting for our salvation. Folks, I got to tell you, this is uh, an important statement. Jesus doesn't call us to be hunters of men and women, but fishers of men and women. If you shove Jesus down people's throats, they will gag at him. We talked about that the other day. But he calls us, uh, so uh, uh, I, I've seen people, you know, they target somebody, get them in their guns, and bam, blast them out, got me another one for the Lord, put a notch on their Bible. We're not called to be hunters of men. We're called to be fishers. And what does a fisherman do? They, 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 they drop the bait, and they're patient. And maybe they go where the fish are biting if they know that kind of thing. Maybe they use other tools, you know, depth finder and stuff. But ultimately, you're not shoving it down people's throats. We're called to be fishers of men, not hunters of men. Folks, as Jesus did for us, May we do for others in his name and by his power. So here we go. Making others thirsty. For what? First, for forgiveness. How many of you remember Natalie Wood? Natalie, do you remember how beautiful girl? So in high school, we had to see the movie Rebel Without a Cause with her and James Dean. And I fell madly in love with her. Oh, my gosh. I was ready to break up with my girlfriend for her. This was in the, the late 70s. Then I found out the movie was made in the late 50s. And she was like 25, 30 years older than me. And when you're a teenager, you know, that's, yeah. The poor thing was on, had one foot on a banana peel, the other foot in the grave, you know, when she was probably in her 50s at that time. But it wasn't long after. And she was married to Robert Wagner, remember? Remember, handsome man, handsome man. They were uh, on a yacht at a party, and uh, she fell overboard, and she drowned. What was amazing, though, two things. People threw life rings at her, and she laughed at them. And then, uh, she, I don't know if you knew this, she was a world-class swimmer. She could have been an Olympic swimmer, they said. And they estimated she should have been able to swim from the yacht to the shore and back to the yacht three times without drowning. And yet she drowned. You know why Natalie Wood drowned? She didn't know she was drowning. Sure, alcohol was involved, but part of it was she didn't know she was drowning. There are people out there drowning, and they don't know they're drowning. They know they're hungry for something, the, the, um, Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician, 
philosopher, theologian said this. God has placed a God-sized hole in every person's soul. Now, that's not biblical. That's Blaise Pascal. But I think he's right. God has placed a God-sized hole in everyone's soul, and it can only be filled by God. And so people feel this emptiness inside of them, and they try to fill the emptiness. And maybe they try to fill the emptiness with, with bad things, drugs, alcohol, illicit relationships, violence. Or maybe they try to fill it with things that, that, that aren't, aren't bad, maybe even be good. You know, they try to fill it with um, humanitarianism or with, with um, shopping or chocolate. Now, I understand chocolate is almost sacramental, so, but if you eat too much, you get sick, right? Everybody has a God-sized hole inside their soul that can only be filled by God. I think Pascal was right. And so that we would quench people's thirst for forgiveness, but sometimes we need to help them see that they're thirsty. Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. Folks, again, you don't need clever tactics and tricks and twaddle. What you need is simply to tell what, what God has done for you. That's what the apostles did. We can't help talking about what we have seen and heard. And the psalmist says, let me tell you what he has done for me. Do you find joy in the Lord? If so, go and share that. I was talking with a little boy who uh, uh, was on a little league team. Yeah, a little boy, and you know that it was a uh, coach pitch. You know what that is, where the coaches do the pitching. Yeah. Well, every time this little boy went up to bat, his own coach struck him out. <laughs> Think about that. And the poor coach wasn't trying, wanted to get the ball over the plate, but didn't want to strike out the boy. It was the last game of the season, and the boy got a hit. Of course, the ball bounced back to the coach, and the coach let it go through his legs. <laughs> and the shortstop, he understood what was going on. So he grabbed the ball, but he bobbled it for a little bit while the boy was running to first base. And of course, he, this, this shortstop had an arm like a laser, but he ended up throwing this loping high ball. <laughs> and the first baseman, you know, was standing on the first base, and he was waiting for the ball, and then the first baseman, just as the ball was coming down, took two steps ahead to catch the ball, but the ball fell over his head. And so the little boy not only got first base, he was on his way to second. Well, the second baseman was covering second base now, and the first baseman got the ball, and he underhanded the ball to the second baseman. Of course, the second baseman uh, didn't even hit his mitt, just kind of went past him. And the boy was running to third base. Anyway boy got all the way home and his the other team even helped him do that uh, he was so so happy he couldn't wait to tell me he got a home run he couldn't wait to tell his pastor I got a home run and even though other people helped him get it, he couldn't wait to tell me I want I want to want to tell other people about Jesus the way that boy wanted to tell me about his home run. Did you ever notice how little kids love to tattle on other, not everyone, but a lot of little kids, they love to tattle on the other one? Boy, I wish we had that verb to tell other people about Jesus the way little kids want to tell their parents on their brother or sister. Witnessing your faith is not waterboarding. You know what waterboarding is, right? A terrible thing. Hold them down, put a rag over their head, and pour water on them until they're about gagging. Witnessing your faith is not waterboarding. And yet, if we're shoving it down people's throats, that's what it's going to feel like to them. It's offering a dying man a drink to quench their thirst. Consider this.
What I love about that. Strangers, horrified to think Granny would end up in the garbage. Strangers, horrified to think that anybody would be thrown away. Oh, if we would feel that way. That everybody matters. Doesn't matter what color their skin is. Doesn't matter the shape of their eyes or the speech of their tongue. Doesn't matter if they have wrinkles or are smooth skinned. Everybody matters. Nobody should get thrown away. I believe this. Jesus is all about recycling. Recycling people. There was this uh, woman. John chapter 8 says this. She was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act. Wasn't framed. Wasn't trumped up charges. That means they busted into the bedroom. And in Jesus' day, a man that got caught committing adultery got his hand slapped. A woman, they brought out into the marketplace, they put her up against a wall, and they threw sharp rocks at her until she died. That was the deal. You stoned a woman. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, says they brought this woman to Jesus. That means they busted in to the bedroom. Imagine the humiliation of having your sin found out. They probably didn't even allow her to put a robe on and dragged her into the marketplace naked. Imagine the embarrassment, the shame. Not only of having your sin exposed, but you being exposed. And she knew the rules. She had to have known the rules. They were going to kill her. Imagine the fear. Shame, humiliation, and fear. Three incredibly powerful emotions that will bring a strong person to their knees. And she's dealing with all of them as they drag her to the marketplace. Now they didn't really care about her or sin. See, they were trying to trap Jesus. Jesus' enemies. Jesus had said, I come to be about love. But he also said, I came to fulfill the law. Well, love would say, let her go. But the law says, stone her. So if Jesus, they brought her to Jesus and said, what do we do with her? And if Jesus said, well, let her go, they go, aha, then you're not about the law. But if you say, well, you've got to stone her, then about, she's, that's, that's what the law says, then you go, aha, you're not about love. They thought they had Jesus trapped. And I picture this woman as they put her up against a wall and they pick up rocks, they're going to kill her. I can imagine her sliding down the wall, her knees coming up, her trying to protect her vital organs with her shins, trying to cover her nakedness, arms held in tight, head ducked. Imagine the fear, the humiliation, the shame. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, says Jesus gets between the, the men who have the rocks and the woman. And it first says this. He, he bends over and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, it never says what he wrote, but I think I know. I think I know because of what he next says. He straightens up and he says the second coolest thing he says. He straightens up and he says, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And so what I think he was doing is because Jesus is God and he could look in the heart and mind of every man and boy that was standing there with a rock. I think what he did is he looked up and he wrote at their feet the sin they struggled with the most. Lying. Thief, gossiper, anger, whatever it was. And he straightened up as I said, second coolest thing. You are without sin, you cast the first stone. And then it says he bends over and he starts writing in the ground with his finger again. And it says one by one, the men and boys drop their rocks and walk away, starting with the oldest. You know why the oldest dropped their rocks first? Because they'd been around the longest, they'd sinned the most until they're all gone. And Jesus looks up and everybody's gone, save the woman. And it doesn't say this in scriptures, but this is how I picture it. I picture him kneeling down next to her, taking off his outer garment, wrapping her up in it. And scripture does say, he asks her question. He says, where'd they all go? Probably relief dripping out of every pore in her being. She looks up and says, I don't know, Lord. And then Jesus asked, don't they condemn you? And she said, I guess not, Lord. And then he says the best thing he could say. 
neither do I condemn you. But don't do this anymore. It's not good for you. It's not healthy. They're going to kill you. Don't do this anymore. But I don't condemn you. See, Jesus is into recycling. And here's the good news. I believe this with all my heart. Two things I want to tell you. Number one, uh, I believe when Jesus forgives us, he not only forgets our sin, but he forgets that he had to forgive us. John, or, uh, Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, and I will remember their sins no more. God is almighty. He can do whatever he wants. He, he can think whatever he wants. And that means he can choose to forget. And he says in his scripture, he forgets. So that means this. Every time you sin and you ask for forgiveness, and Jesus grants it through his blood, you're not only forgiven, but he forgets. Luther tells the story of a man standing outside the gates of heaven. And the angel Gabriel is standing there saying, what's your name? And the man gives the name, and Gabriel says, your name's written in the book of life. Come into heaven. And the man says, no, I've done too many sins. And Gabriel says, what are you talking about? And the man said, I did this, this, and this. And Gabriel said, well, if you did those things, then Jesus would have forgiven him, and he would have told me to go and bury him. But since that time, Jesus has not only made me forget him, he's forgotten him, and he's forgotten even where he, he had me bury him. That's true forgetfulness. And so when you do something wrong, and maybe you've done this before, maybe it was awful, and you came to God and said, God, will you forgive me? I'm so very sorry. Please, can you take this away? And he says, yes, I forgive you through the blood of my son, Jesus. You say, I promise I'll never do it again. But then maybe you did it again. Then you've got double guilt because not only do you have the guilt of the sin that you did, but you got the guilt of promising you wouldn't do it again. And you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you forgive me again? And he says, what are you talking about? Well, I did this before. And he says, I don't remember. But I'd gladly forgive you. And so 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, for anyone who's in Christ, en Christo, to, to be in Christ means to be this, a repentant follower of Jesus, to, to be empty of, your, of yourself and, and wait for the gift of God, and a follower of Jesus to, to receive the grace, to believe. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That means this, every time you repent, not only does Jesus forgive you and forget that he had to forgive you, but he makes you brand new. That means he doesn't erase the, the sin on the tablet of your life. It doesn't even mean he tears off a page of the tablet of the life. It means he makes you a brand new tablet every time. For anyone in, who's in Christ is a new creator. You're brand new. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. People need to know there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Um, at the church I'm at now, um, Emanuel Lutheran I was serving with a fabulous man Lester Messerschmidt he was a, a retired pastor and he was my associate I was the senior and on January 31st of that year uh, Les died and uh, I cried hard and after that, of course, was Lent, and I went through Lent, and uh, a church, uh, we're a pretty big church, we're about uh, 3,200 people, and we have a big school, and uh, we weren't that big then, we were growing, but we, and it was crazy, things were crazy, times were crazy, they'd fired my predecessor, he was kind of a tyrant, he was, a, there's an old German phrase, ich bin ein der Herr Pastor, meaning I am the Lord Pastor. And he was that way, and they fired him. And so I came in. Uh, the, the district president said, uh, go in, give him Jesus. Love him and love him in Jesus' name for two years, and then I'll get you out. Because they were known as a preacher buster congregation. And so give him two years. And I went in, and um, uh, this month I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, they... Uh, well, I'm gone. I travel around the country about 20 weekends a year. 
And so I'm gone a lot that I'm more of a moving target. I think it's hit hard for them to hit me and know when I'm in, in the pulpit. Um, but anyway, uh, after that, that uh, when Pastor Les died and I was all alone, I, we went into Lent. And in our tradition, the Lutheran tradition, we, uh, we have midweek Lenten services. And we try to make them big deals and themes and extra music and whatnot. And I remember... Um, it was a Wednesday night, and uh, we did a Lenten service. And as I was taking off my robes, it didn't go well. It wasn't, uh, I didn't, I wasn't well prepared. It wasn't well executed. And I was, um, uh, it was schlocky, you know, schlocky. It was just a schlocky job. And uh, I've taken off my robes, and all of a sudden I realized there was a whole section of my sermon. I try not to do this anymore where you give the gospel just in one section. You know, you got this part, this part, this part, and this, the gospel. But I did that. That was the sermon. And I'd forgotten that whole I'm not even sure I mentioned Jesus in the name of the sermon or his name in the sermon. It was awful. And I was tired and I was frustrated. And I was angry with Les for dying. And I remember sitting in the sacristy, sitting on a chair. And I just cried. I God, what am I doing? I don't, I don't belong here. What am I doing? And I waited till everybody left. I didn't want to talk to anybody. You know, usually you greet in the back of church, but Lent and Advent, we, we go in the sacristy and let people stay in the church and pray silently. And so we try not to make a commotion. So I waited, and I could see, there's a little peephole that I could see when all the cars were gone. And I was spying on them, making sure they left. And so I... I had my coat, it was cold, so I put on my overcoat and I was walking out the side sacristy door and as I did, there was a fabulous man by the name of Eugene Gotti, Gene Gotti. And uh, he was walking his little dog, Duke. And Duke was about this big, you know, but Duke. He was walking Duke. And I walked out and I bump, almost bumped into him. And he said, Pastor, how are you tonight? I said, well, Gene, I'm not doing very well. He said, what's the matter? I said, well, were you in church tonight? He said, of course I was. And I started to cry. I said, Gene, I'm so tired. And I, I was a terrible pastor tonight. I didn't even give the gospel. I didn't even mention Jesus' name. Did you recognize that? And he goes, yeah, I wondered about that. <laughs> I said, Gene, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he grabbed my shoulder. And he shook it. He's not a pastor. He worked for Abbott Laboratories. He was a scientist researcher guy, but by now he was retired. And he shook my shoulder. And he said, Pastor William Yonker, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. Now go get a good night's sleep. And he slapped my arm, almost sent me in the next Tuesday. <laughs> and he walked on. And I was healed. And I was cleansed. I was forgiven for my ineptitude, my laziness, my tiredness, my waywardness. I was forgiven. Oh, I seek people to forgive me when I mess up. Will you do, will you do something for people? Will you do this when they offer, offer apologies to you? And when it's an apology, when, when they offer, will you do me, not me a favor, do, do them a favor and yourself a favor. Will you use the words, you are forgiven? Sometimes people say, well, that's okay. Well, it's really not okay. Or don't worry about it. Well, I wouldn't have said anything if I wasn't worried about it. Use those words, you are forgiven. Oh, those are powerful words. Those are powerful words. And when you say them, mean them, and strive hard. And if you can't forgive right away, because sometimes human, humans, it's tough. At least say, at least say and be in the process. For Jesus, forgiveness was an event, his death on the cross. For many of us, it's a process, right? And I've had to say to a dear friend who offended me terribly. They said, will you forgive me? And I said, I want to. 
And I'm entering into the process of it. And you certainly can hold me accountable to make sure I stay in the process. But at this point, that's where I am. And I remember being able to say to him, when it was real, I forgive you. And he said to me, can you remind me why you needed to forgive me? <laughs> and I, I, I could, but I said, it's not important. Be in the process. Forgiveness. Uh, I don't see our snacks. Do we get snacks today? Well, they, they, well let's keep going on, but um, heads will roll otherwise, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Jesus is about recycling. Let's do the next one. Making others thirsty for peace. Turmoil comes at odd times. I do a lot of weddings. A lot of weddings. Summer before last, uh, Kevin... And his bride, Nikki, Kevin was a member of the church. I, I confirmed Kevin. Kevin works for the IRS now. He a, carries a gun. He's one of the people that goes in and arrests corporate people who are cheating, you know. And uh, he's kind of a hard scrabble guy. And he married this fabulous gal, Nikki. And she's perfect for him because... He's not going to pull no wool over her eyes. She's fabulous. Well, I got to know him. I, if, if I do your wedding, you got to sit with me four times. Um, because I don't want to marry anybody that's a stranger to me. And I, nobody really wants to be married by a stranger, I don't think, you know. And so um, we met, and I just, I, I thought she was fabulous. Loved her. Loved her way, loved her. Loved how she loved Kevin. Kevin was this hard scratch. He was like a puppy dog around her. And he was smart to be. I met her parents at the rehearsal. Fabulous people. Good people. Hard-working people. And they loved Kevin, and they thought he was just right for their Nikki. And it was fab we had a fabulous rehearsal and then rehearsal dinner. And then uh, on the day of the wedding, it was at 7... Bridges Country Club Garden Wedding in this fabulous place. And it was, uh, all of the guests were going to stay at the country club there, and it was uh, Route 72 where my church was on. It was all torn up, and it was going to be torn up for a year and a half, so it just, they didn't want to fight that and all that. So it was best done at the country club. So it was before the wedding. It was hot, hot day. So they had all of the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and the parents, all the people in the wedding. We were, and me, we were inside the, the clubhouse there, their little restaurant there, golf pro shop. And, and uh, there was a wedding director, and she was, oh, my gosh, she was a general. I mean, she was no-nonsense gal. Who, but I love that, you know, that... My first wedding rehearsal I did was a week after I got ordained. It was my brother's down in Houston, Texas, July 6th, in a church with no air conditioning. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. Took me two hours and 15 minutes to do a rehearsal. They hated me. So when you get a wedding coordinator, that makes things just click, because she knew where the bridesmaids would go and where the bride would dress, blah, blah, blah. And it was just nice. So we were, it was right before the wedding, and I was talking with uh, Kevin's mom. His, his dad had passed away, and Nikki's mom and dad were standing. They were, the moms were gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful, you know. I can tell I'm getting older. I can. I can tell. You know how I know I'm getting older? I'll see a bride and think, oh, what a pretty girl. Then I'll see the bride's mom and go, wow, now that's something. <laughs> you can tell I'm getting older. But beautiful women, just beautiful, beautiful women. And beautiful gowns, you know. And, and you know, if you've married off a child, you, bride, mothers of the brides, you, you know, you spend, and grooms, you spend hours, days, weeks, months looking for the proper dress, right, you know. And both these ladies had chosen. Well, they were gorgeous, fabulous. And we're talking. 
And all of a sudden, the general came in. She said, it's time. Take your places. And the, the, the parents were going to go first. And then the wedding party was going to go. And then uh, I had to go this way. And then Nikki and her dad would come last, you know, of course. And so everybody starts moving, taking their places. And all of a sudden, Nikki's mom says, oh, pastor, I forgot to ask you a question. And she, she, she had been standing there. And she started to turn away. She came back this way. And I stepped forward. And I said, what? And then the general said, we need to go now. And she said, I'll ask you later. And she turned around. And she stepped. And we heard this rip. She had a bit of a train, and it was it, it had it had a little lace on the end of the hem, and I'd been standing on it moments before the wedding. Thank you for cringing. And there's this rip, and there's a strip this long of lace. She would have a tail. <laughs> And I looked up at her and she looked at me and tears immediately sprang to her eyes. And this was a God moment too because one of the waitresses came out, heard and saw the whole thing. Don't panic! I've got tape! I've got pins! We'll take care of it! It's just going to take a moment! And she went and she ran and she got the tape and I'm wanting to be helpful and the general is, Pastor, take your place! I'm like, yes ma'am. <laughs> I'm out of Nobody knew because they did such a nice job. She knew. I knew. It's an awful thing to make a bride's mom cry before the wedding. Even now when I tell that story, there's, my heart is in my throat. and You know, I, I try to be suave and debonair and sophisticated man about the world. And I rip a woman's dress on the day of her daughter's wedding. We need peace. I tell you that to tell you this. We need peace. And at that moment, afterwards, she was so gracious to me, you know, and she hugged me. And, and she said, it makes for a good story. And I said, oh, I'm going to get some mileage out of this one. <laughs> And I said, would you please forgive me? And she said, there's nothing to forgive. I said, please forgive me. And she said, Bill, you're forgiven. I said, thank you. And then she said, have peace about this. Isn't that a great phrase? Have peace about this. And so I do, and I can have some fun with the story, but it was awful. Uh, here's the truth. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Our snacks are set up. I'm going to give you um, a prayer. We'll continue on with this in a moment. Um, it's, it's about 19 to... Let's come back at about 11 o'clock. And so uh, uh, we have Lynn give us a song then too. But let's, let's have a word of prayer first. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thirst for you because you thirsted for us. And through your death and resurrection, your thirst was slaked, it was quenched. Lord Jesus, as we thirst for you, may we be filled again in your word, in your grace, in your gospel. But may we also thirst to tell other people this good news, that their thirst would be quenched as well. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.